Hi, this is John Stonge, and before we get into today's message, I wanted to share just a couple quick things with you. First of all, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, I just wanted to thank you for being part of our listening family, and I hope that the messages and training that we offer here is useful to you, and if so, I'd encourage you to leave a rating or review for this podcast, because that helps trigger Apple in particular to share this podcast and recommend it to others. We'd also invite you to stop by DesireJesus.com. That's where I host my blog and links to my other podcasts. There's also opportunities there to become part of the Healthy Discipleship community or the community we're building on Patreon. But again, I just wanted to thank you for being a listener to this podcast. We're grateful to know that the Lord uses this content to be a blessing in your life, so it makes it joyful for us as we're putting it together. And again, if you'd like to learn more about the ministry that I'm trying to do online and the content we're trying to provide, stop by DesireJesus.com, and you'll be able to see it all right there. And with that said, here's today's message. For the past group of weeks, we've been going through a series in the book of Proverbs. We've been talking about this idea of walking in wisdom and what it looks like, how to grow in godliness, how we can avoid costly mistakes, how to get ahead in life. One of the things that I appreciate about scriptures like what we read in the book of Proverbs is particularly that part where we're encouraged to avoid costly mistakes. I I often think that one one of the biggest signs that we're growing in wisdom is when we don't have to make all our own mistakes. So I learn from plenty of my mistakes. Um, I've made plenty of mistakes all throughout the course of my life. And I'm sure that your story is very similar. But isn't it nice when there are certain mistakes you can avoid because you can learn from the mistakes of somebody else and you can say, all right, I don't have to experience the pain that comes with making that mistake. I can avoid that one. I can apply the lessons of wisdoms learned from it by observing what's going on there. And so that's part of what we're talking about as we work our way through the book of Proverbs. And certainly, one of the things that would be a mistake is if we had a backward-looking faith. And when you look at what we're looking at today from Proverbs chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 20 down to verse 27. So Proverbs 4, starting with verse 20, and we'll read down to verse 27 in just a second. But again, we're going to be talking today about this idea of having a forward-facing faith. So what does that mean? Well, Solomon explains what that means, and he demonstrates that here in this passage. And so that's the question we're asking ourselves today. Do you have a forward-facing faith? If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs 4. And like I said, we're going to pick up here at verse 20. And uh, it's a relatively short portion that we're looking at today, but certainly lots of helpful content here. And this is what it says, starting in verse 20 of Proverbs 4. It says, My son... Be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of your word together today and to think about the things that that you're speaking about here, what it looks like to have a, a face, to have a countenance that's looking forward and thinking about the things that you have revealed to us and the things that you've told us to trust you for. And Lord, we're grateful for the examples of what it looks like to have this kind of faith that we see in this portion of your word. So we pray, Lord, that in the midst of our daily circumstances as we go through life, as we face various challenges, as we go through high points and low points, we pray that we would take this counsel to heart. And Lord, we don't want to just look at this as something that's, that's theoretical or just something that's possible. This is something, Lord, that we want to look at and, and immediately decide within our hearts to begin applying these truths to our daily walk with you. So, Lord, by your grace, we pray that you would empower us to do so and that we would submit ourselves to your lordship so that that actually happens in our day-to-day lives. We commit this time of study to you now, Lord, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in my early teens, I remember our church taking uh, the youth group on a hayride. Did you enjoy hayrides when you were a kid? Did you go on hayrides? Um, you know, we had a, an opportunity even this past summer when we were at family camp to do wagon rides together, although it wasn't, wasn't like, uh, you know, people throwing hay at each other, doing anything like that. But, but when we were kids, you know, we, we loved it. We thought it was so fun. It was very entertaining. The, the hayride was hosted by a farm that was a, a bit of a distance away from our church. And so to save gas, the adult chaperones in the church decided that it would make the most sense to carpool. So they, they got together, decided which cars to take, and basically they looked and, and they were trying to figure out, all right, who has a car that can hold the most people? So if you have a car that's like a high-capacity vehicle, as far as passenger space, you were elected to be on that list. And so a variety of people agreed to do that. Some just straight up offered their vehicles. And one of the volunteers who offered their vehicle was our pastor, And he drove a light blue station wagon. I could still see it very vividly in my mind. He had a light blue station wagon with wood grain exterior trim. And that sounds funny to us now, but at the time I remember thinking that the combination looked pretty sweet. I remember looking at it and thinking, like, that's a pretty sharp-looking car. And, um, And the best part was I was assigned to ride with him. Now, you didn't know me back then but I had a reputation for being a bit mischievous. And so I think, because my pastor at the time was a very no-nonsense guy, I think that there was some strategy in my assignment of which car I was in, although they never admitted that to me or told me that. Uh, But they assigned me to ride with the pastor. And so that was during those glorious days when seatbelts were considered optional. All right, we live in an era right now where we wouldn't dream of of being in our car without our seatbelts. Uh, or, or, you know, allowing children to be in our cars without our seatbelts. But back then, seatbelts were an option if you thought of it. And station wagons, like my pastor had, were very fun cars to ride in because you had all the room in the world to ride around the back. You couldn't stand up. There wasn't a whole lot of headroom, but you had all that room in the back to ride. And our pastor's car actually had an additional feature that I had never experienced before. Our family had had station wagons, but we didn't have this feature. Uh, But his car had an interesting feature. He had a bench seat in the far back. Do you ever see those station wagons that had this? The bench seat in the far back. But, But here's the best part about it. It looks out the rear window. Right? So if you sit in that... Now, 
that's a real dangerous design. I will even admit, right? Because if that car gets rear-ended, you're two inches from the back of the car. We won't think about that part. Obviously, I volunteered to sit in the way back. I volunteered to sit in that bench seat that was facing out the rear window. It was certainly a new experience for me and a new perspective as a passenger, and I thought it was fun. And I'm sure that my pastor was happy about the fact that I was as far away from him as possible in that vehicle. That could have been good. It could have been bad. I'm not certain. But as fun as that was, being in that seat, sitting in the car, facing out the rear window the whole time, it was really, really fun at first, but then eventually the novelty, it wore off. And I I quickly discovered that I actually preferred facing forward. I preferred sitting in the front of the car and looking out the front window, window. I wanted to see what was going on not what had already happened or where we had already been. And I was thinking about that this week in preparing for today as we're we're looking at this passage, because spiritually speaking, the idea of looking forward is a concept that the Lord brings up multiple places throughout the Scripture. And in the portion that we're looking at today that we just read together, and we'll take it a, a, a bit at a time here in just a moment, a verse at a time, but in this portion of Scripture, we see the Lord inviting us to be people who look forward, that we would have a forward-facing faith, that we wouldn't be people who stare backward or be looking side to side. We're actually told directly to be the type of people who, who face forward in regard to spiritual things. And so that's the question we're asking today. Do I have a forward-facing faith? Now, there's, there's several principles that are basically brought up like action steps in this portion of Scripture that I want to point out to us because these are things that will help us to have that forward-facing faith. And this is what it tells us in verses 20 down through 22. I'll reread those in a second. But it basically encourages us to develop a thirst for righteous wisdom. Well, what does it look like to have a thirst for righteous wisdom? Let me read those verses again. Here it says, "'My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. It's a very, it's a very useful portion of Scripture and very similar to many of the admonitions that we've already seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Proverbs. But you see this concept repeated for us yet again here, this idea of having a thirst for righteous wisdom. Uh, does anyone here um, have a day in particular that you, if, if you're going to mow your lawn, is there a day that you tend to mow it? You know, it's like Saturday the day. Anyone here a Saturday lawn care person? No one is, uh, maybe, okay, one, we got one. Just one person? I thought Saturday, oh, two. All right, oh, I see what it is. You're just not wanting to raise your hand because you're afraid I'm going to call you out. I see. All right. Multiple people, Saturdays. Anyone, like Sunday evening, you know, once the sun goes down? Anyone do that? How about Mondays? Anyone a Monday person for mowing? That seems, why would anyone mow on Monday? Well, that's when I mow, (laughs) on Monday. (laughs) Almost always. I typically mow my lawn on Sunday afternoons, but if you think about my schedule, Monday is typically the universal day off for pastors, you know, and so I, I have gotten into that zone throughout my years of pastoring. I treat Monday like like it's my day off. And although I didn't get it, you know, a day off Monday this past week, but usually I take the day off. And so if the weather cooperates, I usually find that it's a good day of the week for me to get that task 
accomplished. I want to mow the lawn that day. Now, now I, admittedly, I recognize for some people to mow their lawn, that's a chore. But I have to admit, for me, it tends to be relaxing as long as the weather cooperates and it's not painfully hot out. And I try and stay hydrated while I'm mowing. But I've noticed something curious when I'm done. And I, it took me a while to kind of piece this together in my mind, what was going on. I've noticed something that when I'm done mowing, particularly on a hot day, there's nothing that I crave more than some kind of fruit juice. So I'm drinking water the whole time, but when I'm done, it always seems like I find myself, I'm just craving some sort of fruit juice. If we have, you know, orange juice, or if we have apple juice, or if we have grape juice, or something like that, that's what I tend to want. I actually think that it's probably my body sending my brain signals that the juice has either the nutrients or the electrolytes that were depleted while I was outside working, and I need to get those back into my body, and so I find myself craving that. I find myself thirsting that. I think we all know what it feels like to have an intense thirst for something. You think about it constantly until you get it. You don't stop thinking about it until you actually obtain it. And in my estimation, I wanted to bring that up because I actually think that that's a helpful feeling to have in mind when we're reading these verses, when we're thinking about the type of things that Solomon is talking about here. He's teaching us to develop a thirst for righteous wisdom. Develop a thirst for righteous wisdom. Now, you've probably noticed this pattern, even though we're early still in the book of Proverbs, but as he makes a pattern of doing, Solomon writes like a father speaking to a son. He's done that multiple times up to this point already in the book, and he does it again here. And he instructs the son, or in our case here, we could say he instructs the reader to be attentive to his words and to have an ear that's inclined to listen to what he's saying, because in that teaching, he says there is life and there is healing. So have an ear that's inclined to listen, because there's life and there's healing in this. And so I picture, and this might not be the, the most uh, common way to phrase this, but when I look at this, I actually picture the listener here being encouraged to have thirsty ears. You know, we don't t- typically think about our ears being a part of our body that thirsts, But I actually think that that's a useful way to describe what Solomon is talking about here when he says, listen, be attentive to the type of things that I'm revealing. Be attentive, crave it, want it, desire it, have thirsty ears. We're encouraged here to be people who have ears that are highly eager to receive the wisdom of God. And and by the way, I see this play out in particular when I'm preaching. And it tends to play out in a very uh, interesting way in this era and in this generation, because I've noticed this transition over the course of the years that I've been preaching. I always know that when I'm proclaiming the scriptures that I have to compete with cell phones, right? We all have, we all have you know, a mobile phone in our pocket. Now, you guys, thankfully, and you bring relief to my heart in this, you guys are really good about this. But I preach in more context than just our church. And so I always know that when I'm proclaiming the scriptures, I have to actually compete with cell phones, and I can actually tell if a person's ears are thirsty to hear the word of God by whether it's the phone or the passage that's got their attention. So if the phone has their attention, I realize, all right, that person probably doesn't have thirsty ears. Maybe I need to yell more. <laughs> uh, but if the scripture has that person's attention, I think, all right, that's somebody who you could tell the Lord's doing a work in their heart to cause them to desire to hear what he's revealed in his word. And if his followers of Christ, so we're, you know, we're seeking to be devoted followers 
of Christ. If we develop a thirst for righteous wisdom, what we end up experiencing are blessings that are protective in nature. Think about that just a second. This is the type of thing that Solomon is trying to reveal here in these verses that we started with today. He's basically, you know, demonstrating a fact that we see developed all throughout the Scriptures. But basically, as our eyes and our hearts learn to point toward Christ and our faith continues to grow mature, what ends up happening is we're people who are thirsty for righteous wisdom from God. We end up being enabled to filter out so much worldly confusion. And that is so helpful in this era in which we live. Because I am being bombarded daily, and I know you're being bombarded daily. And some things I I hear and receive are useful, and other things I think, all right, that's something I need to filter out. I need to have the discipline to filter certain things out because it just produces confusion or worldly values that are antithetical to what Scripture actually teaches. And what ends up happening when we develop a thirst for righteous wisdom and we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our minds and our hearts and we internalize the truth of the Word of God, what ends up happening is your eyes start to open to things you would not have naturally noticed. And we begin to see the issues behind the issues. I remember when I was training, to, uh, when I was training in doing training in counseling as I was trying to earn my master's degree in counseling. One of the things that they trained us to do was to see the issue behind the issues. Or, for, for instance, you know, a lot of times people come to a counselor and say, here's my problem, and we learn to refer to that as the presenting problem because the real problem was usually two layers deep behind it. And you start seeing the real problem, not just the presenting problem. You start to see the, the, you know, the, the real issue, not just the presenting issue. You start to see behind the facades as you develop this thirst for righteous wisdom and the Lord starts opening your eyes to see things as they really are, even if many people in your life don't yet see it. And Solomon is trying to help the reader. He's trying to help those that would come across this scripture to understand this, that if we welcome the wisdom of God, we will begin to see things in a brand new way. And then he goes on to talk about how this is applied. And this is all, by the way, under this umbrella of having a faith that looks forward. So keep that in mind. But he goes on into verse 23, and he teaches us to be people who guard our hearts. Now, I want you to think about that just for a second, even before I reread this portion of Scripture. Because there's two ways to focus on this idea of guarding your heart. There's a healthy and productive way, and there's an unhealthy way. Some people find themselves in a spot where they try to block out all sorts of intervention from others, all sorts of counsel from others. They try to put themselves in a spot where to protect themselves from pain, they don't want to receive input. And then others are trying to be very careful about what they allow to influence them and what they allow their heart to latch onto. And there's two very different perspectives toward that concept. So even as we look at this, I'm not trying to encourage us to be people who shut our hearts down from the capacity to feel, or the capacity to grieve, or the capacity uh, to repent, or any of those things. That's not what I'm talking about in the idea of guarding our hearts. But biblically speaking, we want to be careful about what we allow our hearts to internalize. And that's what Solomon's starting to get at here. Look at what he says in verse 23. He says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 
It's a powerful portion of Scripture. It's something that we would do well to keep in mind. Anyone uh, change some of your routines over the past few months? That's kind of a dumb question because I know that all of us did, right? But anyone change something that you didn't foresee yourself changing? One of the changes, so many of you know that, that I, in, for years and years and years, I've enjoyed working out of my office here at the church. But obviously, during the past few months, I had to make some adjustments, particularly with my kids being home and now them doing remote schooling and stuff like that, trying to figure out, all right, how do I juggle this? Well, I really didn't have a good office set up at home. I just had a, a desk in the corner of my basement, and that's what I would use. And I thought, all right, if I'm going to be spending as much time in this place, plus I've started to do all sorts of other things uh, at home, I thought, I need a better office setup. So I actually went out and I bought these room dividers. And I, I sectioned off a corner of my basement with these room dividers and gave it a dedicated space. I bought an L-shaped desk that's kind of, it doesn't go very deep. I didn't want it to take up a lot of space, but I wanted there to be room on the side of me and room in front of me. And I set up things where, you know, I do a lot of recording and podcasting and things. So I set up my microphone on a boom stand and, and I got all the technical stuff set up. And then I thought, well, you know what? I need to repaint this basement. So I repainted the basement. Now I like the color of the basement a little bit better. And then I also thought, well, I need a couple bookshelves in here because I want to be surrounded by some of my favorite books if I'm going to be working here more. So I got two bookshelves. And then I thought, well, but sometimes my wife pops down here to visit me uh, while I'm working. So let me get a chair and I'll just put that in the corner here so she has a place to sit and we could chat for a little bit. So I got the chair. But then I thought, I need a picture of something over the wall of that chair. So I actually bought a canvas that has a logo on it for, for our discipleship group for Tuesday nights. So I thought, all right, there we go. But then I thought, well, it's kind of dim down here. And so I actually got a couple lamps for on top of the desk, and then a lamp for the table behind the desk. And I even got lamps that show off a bluish light because I like how it looks on video. And I thought, if I'm doing more of these Zoom calls and things like that, I want it to have kind of a finished look. And then when it it was all said and done, I thought, I love this space. I love it. Like, now I'm at a spot where it's where I prefer to work. And here's the other part that I really love about it. It's so quiet down there. Like, stuff going on in my house, I don't hear it. Stuff going on in the world, I don't hear it. It's like its own world. And I thought, wow, that's now become my favorite place to work. And uh, I set that up in May, so it's been, what, now five months I've been using it. I love it, and I get so much more done in a shorter period of time because I don't have distractions, but a problem has occurred over the past week. And I don't know that I've solved it yet, but I'm getting close That basement somehow is being invaded by yellow jackets. So the other day, I was on a Zoom call, and all of a sudden, a big yellow jacket starts hovering right in front of my face, and I'm going like this and trying to swat it. I thought, where are these things coming from? I haven't fully figured it out yet. But now that spot, that area, is being invaded. And I'm trying to figure out how to kill them. I actually have a shop vac that I'm keeping down there, a small shop vac. And before I go to to work in the basement, I take the shop vac, fire it up, and catch anyone flying around. And um, it's it's kind of ruining my routine a little bit because that area is being invaded. Well, here's the analogy. You ready? How does this fit with anything that we're looking at? Do you ever say that when I'm sharing something? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. (laughs) This is my thinking. Because in a similar way, there are all kinds of things, ready for the tie-in, swarming around in your life and in my life 
that would love to be able to invade. Specifically, like Solomon's talking about here, there are things that are trying to invade your heart and my heart. They swarm around you and they swarm around me all the time. You think you're in a spot of solace. You think you're in a spot of peace. And all of a sudden, something comes in that you didn't see coming, and it swarms around and it tries to invade your life. And what happens is there are things that try to compete for your attention. There are things that try to compete for your affection. There are things that want our full devotion that are not healthy and are not wise, but it's coming to get you. And you might not even see it coming, and I might not see it coming. And there are many people in this world, and there are many professing Christians as well, so I don't want to just say other people, it's us too, that have allowed our lives to become derailed because we've stopped guarding our hearts. And there are things swarming around us and trying to invade that at times we're not even doing battle with, we're just letting it in. We're letting it invade. We're letting it take over a space that it doesn't belong. And when you look at what Solomon is encouraging us here, you know, when you look at verse 23, he says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So Solomon here is encouraging us to be vigilant in how we keep, protect, and watch over our hearts. He knew that our hearts could be very susceptible to invasion, and that our hearts can be susceptible to distraction. And from our hearts, we will gradually begin to display what we value and what we prioritize. And our hearts, left to themselves, they have a very, very big problem. Because by nature, we struggle with sin, which means that our hearts are diseased and cannot be fully trusted. Our hearts are actually quite adept at deceiving us. Scripture reveals that to us. Our heart, your heart, my heart, quite adept at deceiving us. So our hearts can't be fully trusted, and that's why Jesus intervened on our behalf. That's why Jesus decided to do something about this, because we, we were in a spot that we were ultimately powerless to correct. I love what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 15, and it's worth noting as we're talking about what Solomon is referencing in, in Proverbs chapter 4. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew 15, starting with verse 19. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So you have Jesus telling us, look, you know, look at the things that could come out of our hearts. Look at the things that tend to come out of our hearts. He says, these are things that defile us. These are things that don't belong there, but they're there. And so Christ has chosen to intervene. And our hearts, they reveal what we value. Our hearts reveal what's going on inside of us. Our hearts demonstrate how lost we would be without the intervention of Christ. But thankfully, through Jesus Christ, we receive a new heart. Through faith in Jesus Christ, your heart does not remain like it once was. And he teaches us to value things that we did not value before. And he teaches us not to leave our hearts unguarded from the arrows of worldly temptation. The new heart that Christ gives us, the new heart he gives us aligns with his eternal desires for our lives. So this is a gift that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave your heart in the state that it was in when he found you. So with this new heart, let's, and, and with that in mind in particular, let's ask one additional question. How can we avoid veering in an unguarded and unhealthy direction 
with this new heart that Christ has blessed us with. Well, when you look at verses 24 to 27 of Proverbs 4, you have Solomon challenging us not to be diverted from the path that God has placed us on. And I want us to read this with the understanding that Christ has given us a new heart that values new things. Proverbs 4, starting with verse 24, let me read these verses for us. There Solomon says, "...put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure." Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Just the other day, I received a prayer request from someone that I do not know personally, um, but basically what had happened was, due, due to a downturn in the industry that she's involved in, she was just informed this week that she lost her job. And there's a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of job loss in that particular industry. And so I've been praying for her multiple times throughout the course of this week. And I'm sure that probably most, if not all of us, can sympathize with the type of things that she's feeling. And there's probably many people in your life and my life who are going through a stretch right now where they're experiencing things like that, either the loss of a job or a reduction in hours or a change to a drastically different career because it doesn't look like the career they were involved in is coming back anytime soon. It's very challenging. It can be very difficult. What should you do if you find yourself in a situation like that? With that unexpected change going on in your life, should you give up? Should you press on? Is there something else that you should do? I don't know if you're familiar with the name Pat Flynn. This is going to test your podcasting um, uh, interest. He has a very popular podcast. Anyone familiar with the name Pat Flynn? All right, you're familiar with it now. Look him up. Oh, all right, one person. Thank you, Dave. I, I was hoping that there'd be some solidarity on this. He has a very interesting story, though. And it's worth checking up. I actually listened, I've listened to his stuff for years, but uh, I listened to an interview with him the other day that has this kind of fresh in my mind. And he was recalling how back in 2008, the last time we went through a, a very serious change in what economics looked like in our country, during 2008, Pat Flynn was employed as an architect. And uh, apparently he was a good architect. But because of massive changes in his industry and, uh, and the housing bubble bursting during that time, he had a great job that he immediately lost in 2008. And he was feeling freaked out about it. He wasn't really sure what to do about that. And so he put some thoughts together and decided that he was going to do something constructive instead of just sitting on his hands, never figuring it out. And he realized that he was pretty good at taking the exam that helped people to get licensed to be an architect. So he thought it might be helpful if he put together some form of online training that taught people how to pass the class that, that, you know, that licenses and trains um, architects. So he put together training on how to pass that class, and he made that available online, and people started using it, and then they started sharing it. And then all of a sudden, Pat Flynn's income exceeded what he was making as an architect, and then it dawned on him, this needs to be what I remain focused on. Not so much architecture, but on showing people what he did in case they ever got in a spot like he got in, because he was terrified when he lost his job. And so he thought, I need to help people figure out 
how they can bounce back from things like this and maybe apply some of the principles that I've learned as someone who lost his job to their industry or their area of expertise. And so basically, he spent the past 12 years teaching people online through podcasts, through courses, through books, how to bounce back from things like this. It's become his singular focus. Now, that sounds pretty useful, doesn't it? And apparently, the marketplace thinks it's very useful as well because the guy, I think at this point now, he brings in, I'm not sure if this number is exact, but I think he brings in about $1 zillion per day. So I guess he's doing okay. I think that's, I'll have to look at my sources again, but it's somewhere close to $1 zillion per day, helping people figure out how they can bounce back from stuff like that. And he stayed very, very focused on it and very consistent, building that niche out over the course of the past 12 years. And I thought there was a good application in his example that we can apply to our walk with Christ in a very obvious way when you look at this portion of Scripture that we just read, because there's a path that the Lord directs us to follow when you read His Word. He says, stay on this path, don't get off this path, don't be distracted, don't be diverted. All those who trust in Jesus Christ, basically all aspects of our lives are to be impacted by Christ's presence within us, and we're to remain on the path that he's placed us on. We're encouraged to be people who do not divert from that path. Our fidelity to remaining on that path is going to be visibly demonstrated in some very obvious ways in our day-to-day lives. And Solomon here in Proverbs 4 brought those areas up. If you're staying on the path, that's going to show up in how you speak, It's going to show up in how you use your eyes, and it's also going to show up in observing which direction your feet are going. If your feet are on the path, you're going to remain faithful over the long term. If you're starting to divert, you're going to to see your feet going in a direction that they shouldn't go. And so Solomon encourages us to be people who remain on that path, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that we're empowered to remain on that path. But again, Solomon talks about speech, he talks about eyes, and he talks about feet when describing this path. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about speech, a lot to say about how we use our words. And in fact, one of the most powerful tools you have is your ability to communicate. And the things that you communicate will impact people for good or for bad. Solomon encourages us to put crooked speech and deception far from us. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're reminded that our words can build up, our words can tear down, Our words can communicate the gospel. Our words can instruct the wise. Our words can convey love. Our words can speak a blessing. Our our words can voice a petition before the throne of God. These are ways that Scripture challenges us to use our words or not to use our words. But we're shown various ways that our words have a powerful impact. I like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. It's in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you can see Scripture talks all about this idea of how we use our words, how our words are conveyed, how we use what comes out of our mouth. The Bible also has a lot to say about our eyes. Solomon was focused on these things here in this particular portion of Scripture. And he encourages us to, people who, to be people who look directly forward. 
to be people who look directly forward. So I want you to think about that. And again, we're going we're gonna to visit Hebrews 12 in just a second with that in mind. But as people who look forward, you know, and, and when you look at the, t- the totality of what Scripture tells us in regard to this, we're encouraged to, to not look longingly toward, toward worldly affections. We're encouraged to be people who avoid feeding the lusts of our eyes. We're encouraged to be people who fix our eyes on Christ. And Solomon is conveying this idea of use your eyes in a God-centered way. The Bible has much to say about how we use our feet. Solomon encourages us to think about where we're walking, to avoid veering off path, to turn our feet away from evil. Elsewhere in Scripture, when you see what Scripture tells us about how our feet get used, we're invited to come running to our Heavenly Father, who loves us. We're invited to be people who look at our lives and say, all right, I'm going to be somebody who serves as an ambassador of Christ, a missionary who brings the good news where it has not yet been heard. And again, all of this is to be done with a forward-looking faith. The way we use our speech, the content we feed our eyes, the path that our feet follow. It should all reflect the new heart that Jesus has given us. And again, when we think about the examples of forward-looking faith that we're given, we're given in Scripture, the most powerful example we're given is the example of Christ himself. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, in verses 1 and 2, very specifically demonstrate that. And I want to read that for us again here. Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 1, it says this, with the example of Christ in mind, it says, let us run with, the endur- with, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, and notice this statement, this statement in particular I want us to focus on, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So again, we're called, we're invited, we're empowered to have a forward-facing faith that reflects the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus was willing to endure all that he experienced on this earth because he could see beyond it. He could see beyond all of it. So as we run our race on this planet, the race that he's given to you and given to me, admittedly, and we've all felt this way, but admittedly it can be easy for us at times to feel a bit weary. Do you ever feel weary in the midst of the race that the Lord's called you to run? I would be lying if I didn't say that at times... I feel weary. But I'm so grateful for portions of Scripture like this from Hebrews chapter 12 that remind us that ultimately we can run the race with endurance. We could look to the example of Christ who was able to see beyond the moment. He had joy because he could see beyond the momentary pain. He could see beyond what he was willing to endure. And if we keep our eyes on Jesus, if we keep learning to see what he sees, I believe he will change our perspective drastically. When you look at what Jesus was looking forward to, and when you could see what the the Scriptures are teaching us in regard to what Jesus was seeing and what he was valuing, he could already see the new family he was going to establish, the church. He could already see that. He was also looking forward to the redemption of billions of lives. People all throughout the generations, all throughout the world who would come to know him. He was looking forward to the reformation and the restoration of creation. And that's something that we'll have the opportunity someday to see with our own eyes. Right now, we see it by faith. But there's going to be a day when we're going to see it with our own eyes because he's going to restore all things. 
And because he was able to see beyond his momentary pain, he endured the most excruciating form of death that the mind of man could come up with at the time. He endured crucifixion so that he could pay for this all, so that he could rescue and redeem us, so that he could help us to see with new eyes and with a new heart and have new feet that walk on a new path. So as those who follow Christ, as those who trust in him completely, the Scripture is calling us to remember his example, to keep our eyes on him, and to look forward to all that he has in store for those who know him and those who love him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of your word together today. And Lord, by your grace, we're, we're enabled to have a faith that looks forward. We don't need to have a faith that keeps staring out the rear window. We don't have, have to have a faith that keeps looking side to side. We don't have to have a faith that looks down or gets stuck in a particular moment. Lord, you invite us to have a faith that ultimately is looking forward just like you demonstrated during the course of your earthly ministry. Your word tells us that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And so we have the opportunity to wrestle with that thought for just a moment. What was this joy set before you? What were you seeing in your heart? What were you seeing in your mind even before It was something that could be seen with the eyes. Well, you were seeing lost people brought unto you. You were seeing dead people brought to life. You were seeing sinful people cleansed and healed and forgiven. You were seeing the restoration of all things. You were seeing your benevolent reign over a family that you would unite together in you. And since you could see it all, you were willing to endure what it took to pay for it to become a reality. So, Lord Jesus, we're grateful for the fact that you chose to do this on our behalf. And we're grateful for the fact that we could look to your example, that we could keep our eyes focused on you, and that we could ultimately rejoice in in the things that you accomplish in our lives. Lord, we know that there are many people in our lives, some, some of them even believers, that right now are in a spot where they're looking side to side, maybe they're looking backward, maybe they're in a season of confusion. We pray that you give them clarity and that their eyes would once again focus on you. Lord, we know that there are people in our lives who as of yet do not know you, and so they're all consumed with the things of this world, as if this is all there was or all there ever will be. And so they don't have the eternal perspective that you've allowed us to have. They don't have the opportunity to see beyond the moment into a future joy because that's not something clear to them. So, Lord, we pray that as you've made that clear to us and as you continue to develop our faith and make it clearer and clearer, we pray that you would open the eyes and the hearts of those who as of yet do not know you. We think of our friends. We think of our family members. We think of our neighbors, our community, our associates, the people we work with. We pray that you draw them unto yourself and help them to see the things that you've called them to see. Lord, we're grateful for the work that you're doing in our lives and the work that you do in the lives of anyone who trusts in you. And we pray that you'd continue to foster a forward-facing faith in our hearts and in our lives as we seek to follow your example. Thank you again for this teaching from your word. We pray that you'd speak it to our hearts powerfully today. 
and that by your grace we'd live it out. We thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. When you get the chance, I'd like to invite you to stop by my website, which is desirejesus.com. And when you're there, be sure to sign up for our email list and take advantage of the free books and free resources that we have there to help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you feel led to help support this podcast and our other online ministry efforts, please click the link in this episode's description to give a gift. And don't forget to leave the podcast a rating or review via your favorite podcast player. I hope you have a great week, and I'm looking forward to getting together again right here next Monday. Take care. Hello, I'm Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we are the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. What we believe is that addiction is not a surprise to God. That's right. We discuss addiction from a biblical worldview and how true freedom comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolute freedom from addiction. The secular worldview of once an addict, always an addict is just not true. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, subscribe to Life After Addiction at lifeaudio.com.